we have uh, continued our series uh, over the last few weeks of the book of Acts. And one of the things that today is uh, in Acts chapter 9, we're going to be talking about, obviously, if you know the book of Acts, the conversion of Paul. As I thought about that, I, you know, I have known people over the years, and some were close to me, that once they get an opinion of you or of someone, their opinion can't improve to that person at all in the future. It can just get worse. Do you know anybody like that who their, their bent is, once they get an opinion of someone, it cannot improve anymore. It can go down, but it cannot improve. And many times this picture, it could be a person you've seen on TV, it could be a person you see from a distance, it could be a person you see up close. And it could be a misunderstanding or it could be legitimate evidence that you have that this person is who you think they are. But the awesome thing about being a Christian, and I think is probably one of the greatest parts about being a believer, I think, is I'm pretty optimistic when I look at people. I, as many of you know, when we teach on some of the things I teach on here, one of the great traits, I believe, of walking in the fullness of Christ is you believe God can in somebody else's life. You believe he can take a life that is really blown itself up and blown other people's lives up around it, and God can take that life and change it and send it on a different direction. You genuinely can look at anybody. And maybe it's easier to go through life and not already form an opinion of that person's future. Now, you can look at their past and say, man, that was destructive. You can look at everything up to that day and go, man, that was not good. But at that point, God flips it around and says, no, look at them the way I look at them. Look at the way I looked at you. I didn't see you the way you were. I saw you the way you could be. That gives you a lot of freedom. And it's also messy. Because he may ask you to be used in the middle of that process of that person being changed. By God's amazing grace, we believe He can take ordinary people and use extraordinary power and let them walk in it for great change. So here we are today with a little bit of evidence of that, of that in Scripture. Acts chapter 9. If you've got your Bible, or, or whatever you use, or you have it up on the screen too, whatever device you have, I'm more and more convinced, and I'm not trying to... to say that having it electronically is bad, so don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? But there is something about, I'm learning more and more about writing in the margins of your Bible, about marking and underlining. There is something about that. I, I don't know how, how many of you do, but I read, I am the type of, if you do read, and I'll talk about that later, but I'm a dog here, underline, write in the margins, highlight. Okay, that's what I do when I read it. But it's hard for me to do it on do it electronically. It's hard to dog ear that page. I guess you can. I guess it's really good was to do it, but but it is hard. But I would encourage you to bring the written word. Uh, I think it's I think as we go forward, I think it's helpful to write and have something to write down and write the margin. If there's anything, and here's what I would say to you about that. I may not say anything that you write down. <laughs> there's a great chance I will not. 
we serve an all-powerful, all-present spirit that in God that is spiritually moving in us, and he may say something to you in the middle of me speaking that has nothing to do with what I'm saying. But you can record it. Just an encouragement to you. But today, we're going to talk about two different men. And one is a man that a few millennials later, there are cathedrals named after, okay? I mean, uh, St. Paul. But we're going to talk about another man who in eight verses, he shows up that he believes and fades into history. And, and I would say both are critical in the early church. So today, I'm going to guess each one of us probably lands in one of those places. Either you're where St. Paul or Saul, we'll talk about here in just a minute, or you're like Ananias that we'll talk about here in just a minute. You're in one of those two places. And I hopefully can share that with you today where it makes sense. Just a little bit of a setup. We're going to read again Acts 9, 1 through 19. A little bit of a setup. This takes place about, and the best I could figure out here, this, what I'm about to read to you, or we're going to read together, takes place about a year or so after the ascension. So the road to Damascus, is, is when Paul, which is we'll read here, uh, has this experience with Jesus, is about a year or so. So don't hold me to that strictly, but uh, that just kind of give you a picture of where we are here. And let me go ahead and just read it, and then we can back our way back into it. So Acts chapter 9, verse 1, we're going to read through verse 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing and out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he, had neared, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the, by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen, in a, vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Paul, Brother Saul, <laughs> Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He 
he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. First, most of you know, if you know this, this passage of Scripture, no Scripture at all, that, that Saul, Paul, was originally named Saul at this time, and on his way to Damascus with this letter, the word says, uh, from the high priest, he was going to arrest everybody who belonged that he could find to the way. Meaning those who follow Christ is, is the little meaning there. But what was it like for Paul? I mean, think about Paul at this point. He's extremely intelligent, as we know. He's compelled. We, you know, we talk about here a lot of times. Uh, we talk about here a lot about being compelled. So Paul, obviously, at this point, is compelled. And he's so diligent about his religious beliefs, he takes on this, or given or whatever, takes on this passion to stamp out, stomp out the way. He's a son of a Pharisee. He's taught by Gamaliel, who is one of the great teachers of the time. He's a Roman citizen. That's Paul. Acts 22, 3 says, and this is Paul speaking before them, he says, I am a Jew. Born, of, born in Tarsus, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as many of you are here today. Acts 26, 9 through 11, he, he's talking to me and he's talking now before King Agrippa and talking to him about giving the defense for what he had been doing. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus in that. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and they were put to death. I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. That was possible. The word says he breathed these threats, these murderous threats. In other words, it was so on the front burner. Everything he thought about, again, compelled doesn't even do it justice here, I don't think. I mean, he's so far past that that everything he thought about, he literally, like he breathed it like a venomous creature. He was breathing these threats out. But suddenly he's on the road and he's almost in a mass and this bright light shone on him and, and the entire party, the word says, fell to the ground. He speaks. Jesus speaks from this light, if you will. So why are you persecuting me? Even though he's killing and he's, or at least he's arresting and allowing to be murdered Christians, the question is not why are you doing it to them? Why are you doing it to me? Now we don't know for sure at that point, Paul totally understood, or Saul totally understood it was Jesus, but he knew it was the deity. He knew that part of it. And I would have a feeling if I'm Saul in this moment, as soon as I realize who it is, the first thing that comes across my mind is, I'm a dead man. <laughs> I'm done. And what else would you think at that point? Everything I have done up to this point, with all my zeal, I've been messing with the wrong thing. The 
first day of Strut Blind, he was led into the city, to the home of Judas on Straight Street. And here he would be without food and water for three days. I began to think as I was studying it this week, what was it like for Saul for those three days? I mean, what was going through his mind? I don't know how many of you, if you've ever, if you've ever had regret on something, and sometimes we, we have a regret on top of regret if we're not careful, but we've got regret, and it could be from a small thing like, hey, I, I backed into a car and I had to leave a note, and they called me, and I had my insurance, had to pay for it. If I'd have just turned this way, doggone it, if I'd have just waited another, I just, I dwell on it. How many of you are dwellers? You just can't seem to let it go. And it could be small things. It could almost be so insignificant, but it was, it was $600 I had to pay to get that car fixed, okay? Because my deductible is a thousand. When it, this was also my insurance agent, I think, is in here. So this was a few years ago. This didn't happen. So just so you know that. So it was way before I was insured by you. Now, but you're a dweller. You overanalyze it. You wonder if Paul was a dweller. Or is it just like, oh, that happened, boom, move on. Was it time filled with a lot of remorse? Repentance? Confusion? See, for all of us, there is knowledge we wish we didn't have. I, I, I don't care who you are today, if you're old enough, I just have a feeling there is knowledge you wish you didn't own. And there's just not a delete button. There's not a button you can just go over here. Now, I wish I didn't have that in my mind anymore. Because if I did, boy, I could move past that a lot easier. But we can't find that delete button. We can't find that trash can just to bag it up and get rid of it. But what we know by Paul, who will become Paul, and what I can tell you by living proof today is, you may not be able to delete harmful information and devastating knowledge. But what you can do, is to allow Christ to transform that knowledge to be used for his sake. That's possible. He may not ever remove it, but he'll give you a new filter to look at it through. He'll give you the Holy Spirit where when that, when that thought comes, you don't get around the edge of it. You don't go out here around looking at it without the Holy Spirit. And you don't let anybody else bring it to you without you first filtering it through that. Because when you filter it through that, when you begin to filter it through the power of the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden, it has a possibility of being used to change the kingdom, to change people's lives. I suspect there were times during those three days, even though God gives him a vision too of Ananias coming, I suspect during those three days... Like some of you have done, I know I did early on, especially early on in my faith. I've sinned too much. Those sins are too big. I know you're a big God, and I know I kind of understand what's going on here, but you don't get my story, God. You don't understand how significant and how big it is. Wayne Cordero, I read a book on, may shock some of you, but I read a book. No, but I, and I'll talk about that in just a minute, but I read a book on vacation. It's called The Divine Mentor. And Wayne Cordero talks about, in The Divine Mentor, 
He said there's really two ways to gain wisdom. There's two pains, he calls it, to gain wisdom. There's either discipline or regret. There's really only two. You either do it by discipline or you do it by regret. And sometimes even regret, you don't really learn anything. You just regret it. You really didn't learn anything. But he goes on to say, the pain of discipline costs way less than the cost of regrets. Regret and it ain't even close. So many of us are worried about being disciplined. We feel like that's some kind of bondage. I'm telling you today, and I think you would agree with me, discipline is the greatest way to gain wisdom. Most of us want to live long enough to... My dad used to say, Kurt, you'll never live long enough to make all the mistakes yourself, learn from other people. And I'd say to a generation that's sitting in here from college to high school, we can't wait for you to... Make all the mistakes to gain wisdom. You need to begin to learn from other people and begin to discipline yourself. This culture cannot wait for you to be 50 years old and figure this out. We cannot wait for that. You're not excused from it. And this phrase, Damascus Road experience, we've most of been in church, we've heard that, we think about the Apostle Paul as soon as we hear about it. We think about this, we'll use it, and when we hear somebody go, wow, they, that happened, and boom, they turned their life around right then. It was immediate. It's kind of how we look at it, and, it, and it does mean that in so many ways. But for many of you in the room today, it was a gradual thing. When you came to Christ, it was a, a piece, a little, little bit of peace here, a little bit of peace there, and all of a sudden the Spirit was wooing you, and, 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 and somehow another, I say somehow another, it was God's Spirit drawing you, but you realize it is time for me to give my life to Christ. There's a decision. There's a time. Some, it's kind of forced on you like Paul. Or like myself. 27 years old. I believe mine was more of a Damascus Road experience. And it's about conversion. It's about changing. It's about transformation. We talk about so much here at Renovation. It's not just accepting Christ. It is being transformed by Christ. It's more than just checking a box. Conversion. I was asked recently by, he's become a friend, but he's of of another faith. I don't mean like Christian and they're in another denomination. I'm talking about a different faith, and I won't go into that. But he and I were talking one day, and he asked me, and he and I meet pretty regularly. And he asked me about Christianity, and he said, uh, he said, from his faith, he just doesn't understand why don't all the faiths around the world don't just kind of stay in their lane and quit trying to convert people from other religions or whatever. Just, just if everybody inside their own religion, whether it's whether you're Christian or Hindu or Muslim or whatever that is, whatever you would be, if you would just stay in your lane and become the best version of who you're supposed to be inside of that lane, then we would all be better off. And I agree with that to some degree. degree. But his question was, and he asked about me personally and about Renovation Church, do you guys believe in conversion? And I shared with him, I said, well, let me ask you a question. 
Have you always been, and I won't share his faith here, but have you always been the faith that you pronounce right now? He says, oh yeah, I was born into it. You know, from day one, I was this. I said, well, let me share my story just briefly. I said, both my parents, I said, I grew up in Arkansas. Both my parents were awesome Christian parents and and Christian people. They lived it. They were examples of it. They, they They were phenomenal. I went to church till I was about 16, then from 16, 17 to about 26, 27, I didn't go to church. I said, but I did not become a Christian, even though my parents were Christians, I did not become a Christian until I was 27 years old. And he's just looking at me going, okay. I said, I had parents who were Christian, we would have been called a Christian family, but I wasn't a Christian. I said, it wasn't until when I was 27 years old on December 13th, 1986 at at exit 199, Highway 82 and I-30 in in New Boston, Texas. He's looking at me like, what are you spitting out there? I said, on the side of an interstate, I gave my life to Christ. And I said, it changed me. It transformed me. I was going that way and all of a sudden I'm going that way. I said, it was a conversion. I said, every person I know that I believe is truly following Christ is converted from something. Either another religion or nothing. (laughs) And I says, and it also in Matthew 28, Jesus tells us as Christians to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To go to the ends of the earth, the commission He gave to the to the, uh, the, the disciples at Pentecost, before Pentecost. I said, but I also want to share this with you. Jesus also gave the great commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And let me tell you right now, brother, you're my neighbor. And I'm going to love you, not because of what you've done or who you worship or whatever, but because of who I am in him. I wrote this down yesterday. There is a difference between loving someone someone because of what they've done. It's different than loving someone because of who you've become. Let me just say that again because I think, it's, I think the Lord gave this to me yesterday. Some of you in teenagers in here love your parents because of what they've done. And that's awesome. But you need to begin to start loving people because of who you've become. Because that parent may disappoint you. And they may not always be able to give you what they, you've always gotten. That's a different kind of love, folks. You love people because of who you've become in Him, not because of what someone has or has not done for you. Conversion. And you don't come by that naturally. You come by that supernaturally. It's the only way you can. I mean, and God not only will convert you in so many... That's the reason I mentioned the reading a while ago. When I, got, when I came to know Christ as my Savior, I was not a reader. I read the sports page. I read maybe Sports Illustrated on occasion. And I read whatever was required in school. That was it. But as soon as I gave my life to Christ, I became a reader, an avid reader. 
I, I, I had it with me. And I don't know where I laid it down somewhere. I had my little pocket Bible that I read when I worked for Alumax Aluminum Company back in 1987 and 88 when I, when I worked there for six years. But where I could run my position at my job, I asked my boss, can I read my Bible here? And he said, you sure can. He said, as long as you do your job. And I did my job well. And for about every 40 minutes, I got about 20 to 25 to be able to read my Bible on the company dime, and they didn't care. And I read that little New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs. I'm going to guess in about eight or nine months there, probably 10 to 15 times all the way through. I read other books. I read two books on vacation, The God-Shaped Brain and Divine Mentor, that's helping shape me and continue to... But I can't just go there. I can't just wait for somebody else to write something. I've got to be in here where the Holy Spirit speaks to me. That's the reason why I think we've got to do more and more self-feeding. The conversion is not about I gave my life to Christ once and I'll just rest on that. It's like coming to church on Sunday and thinking it's kind of like eating on Thanksgiving. I'll say I'll wait and eat again next Thanksgiving. Who does that? It's crazy. I got to get. It's not even sustainable. Let me say this. It is up to you to feed yourself, but God may use me. He may use me to help you, but it is up to you to do it. Because it's unsustainable otherwise. It is just simply unsustainable. The conversion begins to give you a hunger after something. It's a hunger to be with God's people. It's a hunger to be in His Word. It's a hunger to move and operate in His Spirit. Paul, God gives Paul a vision of who's going to come. And so it's kind of like when I'm reading this, it's kind of like if you're watching a play right now and over here is Paul and the road to Damascus and he's going to Judah, uh, the house of Judas on Straight Street and all of a sudden that light begins to fade out into darkness and all of a sudden here's another light comes up and there's Ananias in his room. Ananias, a man of great reputation, the word says, I think it says in Acts 22 or Acts 26 whenever Paul talks about it again, a great reputation, observer of the law, diligent. That's who he was. But he was also a disciple of Christ. Now he had probably heard that Paul was or Saul was coming. The Saul of Tarsus was headed to Damascus. Probably a little bit of dread there. He's willing to die for Christ. We would guess. We don't know. We don't know. He doesn't say. But probably a lot of dread because here's the dude. This guy is famous for what he's doing, and he's coming to us. And then God comes to Ananias. Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. God is asking Ananias to go and confront the ringleader of the persecutors. And I think we all have a little bit of Ananias in us. Because I love what Ananias does here, I think. Have you ever sensed you heard from God? 
Maybe you haven't, but you've since you've heard from God, whether it's through the Word, whether whether it's through circumstances, whether it's through the Spirit, whether whether it's through a dream like I have a few times. You've since got. But what does Ananias do? Newsflash, God. Maybe you've forgotten a few details. This is the dude. This is the guy who's going in breathing, if you will, venomous hatred towards us, murderous threats. But God knew all about Saul, obviously, didn't he? And he tells Ananias, go. Okay, I've told you once to go. I've let you have your little rambling. Now go. I will give you a little bit of information, a little bit of, if you want just a little bit, I will tell you this. He is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. Just, I'm giving you that just as a, so you'll know I've got this figured out. I really don't have to give this to you. I really don't, really, I feel like I'm obligated to give this to you, but I just want to give you a little bit of faith, a little bit of, okay. You know what? The reason why I love this passage of Scripture is not just the fact of the conversion of Paul and, and what Paul obviously ends up doing as time goes on and what we're still reaping the benefits of that. But let me tell you the other part about this. I love the fact that God chose to use Ananias. He didn't have to. Did he have to remove the skills? Did he have to send a man to lay hands on it? Did he have to send a man to pray over Paul? No. But he chose to use another human being that was committed to, God, committed to him in an act of obedience. You know, a few weeks ago, on, on, I think it was July 9th, I preached a sermon called One Day out of Acts chapter 3 where Paul, I mean Peter and John were going to the temple gate and there was a crippled man there and he said, silver and gold I do not have in the name of Jesus Christ walked. The man grabbed his hand, picked him up and the guy walked. And one of the points I tried to make that day was this. It took a lot of faith for that man to grab Peter and John's hand, but it took greater faith, I believe, for Peter and John to extend the hand in the first place. Because without the first step of faith, the second step of faith doesn't happen. Without Peter and John willing to be obedient to an almighty God who has empowered them to do what they need to do, the young man, or 30, well, actually 40-something years old, I don't guess he was that young, that man would have stayed crippled probably from that point on. He, he looked into the eyes of those men and knew they were different. Who was the first person that Paul saw as a, as, as a, as a, a healed man? A man of obedience? A man of great courage? Paul knew, Paul knew when, when God gave him the vision that Ananias was coming, he knew he wouldn't send in a Roman soldier. He wasn't sending a, 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 a part of the, of the Sadducees or the, or the religious council. He was sending one of the people that he had persecuted to heal me. Considering Ananias... Is there a person or are there people that need you to have faith in an all-powerful God to take that step of faith and courage? Because without your step of faith, maybe theirs doesn't happen.
I'll say it again. To take that step of faith. Because without your step, their step has no shot. Is it possible that your boldness today is someone else's one day tomorrow? Mom, dad, husband, wife, business owner. Your step of faith today and courage and boldness to walk this out may be somebody else's one day tomorrow. And you may be like Ananias after you take that step of faith, you may fade into history. But you may have set something in motion in such an unbelievable way that they'll be talking about that your step of faith a couple millennials later. Taking his step of faith, Ananias launches because of his obedience and courageousness the calling the most influential of all the apostles. This week, we have an opportunity. Many of you will be here. Some I know it's, it's scheduling and maybe even cost. I don't know. And if it's cost, please let us know about that being a part of the Global Leadership Summit and, and just so glad that you're that, that those who have signed up can, can be here this week. But over the years, I've said this, the Global Leadership Summit is most, one of the most impactful things I've ever been a part of as far as leadership and, 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 and gleaning. And that, as Andy said, in all aspects of life. But a few years ago, they showed a video called Grander Vision. They show them almost every year or the last few years they have. It's a man named Burl Cain in Angola Prison in Louisiana. Now I want to show that as we close this morning. Show you a little bit about what God can do that someone else has given up on and by someone being obedient to walking out what God's called them to do. On the day you were transferred to Angola Prison, what went through your mind? Um, I was honestly scared to death. And I remember looking around the bus, some of the men faces you could see terror, bewilderment. Some of the men faces it was just a blank stare. It was the bloodiest penitentiary in the nation. You had two types of people predators and prey. Either you became among the most violent men or you were one of the most abused men. There's killings almost every other day. They were saying that you make sure you find your shank and keep it on you and watch the company you keep. And since Ward Kane has come here, it's a different prison because it's different leadership. Angola is a maximum security prison with 6,300 prisoners seated on the Mississippi River with 18,000 acres, which is about the same size as Manhattan Island. And 90% of the inmates you meet are going to die here. 
reputation was such that I didn't want the job. I did not apply for this job. I did not say, please let me go to Angola. I'll do you a good job. I said, I don't want this job. And so I was tactically coerced by the Secretary of Corrections, who was a dear friend, to take it temporarily. I came here in 95, so I've been here a little bit over 20 years. When I became a prison warden and I told my mom, she said, let me tell you one thing. She said, God, you're going to hold you accountable that they have a chance to know him. And if you fail at that, he is going to punish you. And I said, yes, ma'am. Immediately when I came here, it was a horrible place, and it was running me crazy. There was blood everywhere. They would fight with a lock in the sock. They had weapons. We couldn't get the weapons, and we couldn't get through it first time in my life that I really felt that God talked to me was here, but it was also the first time in my life that I was desperate enough to listen. The whole deal was, if I could make a moral, I could heal the prison. We found a morality in religion because in our culture, you find morality quicker in religion than anywhere else, and I'm desperate for morality real quick. Now, the cool thing about moral rehabilitation is everybody from every group, atheist or what have you, wants people to be moral, and he wants them to rehabilitate. So those two words could find no enemies. Turn in your textbook, please, to 151. Jesus is talking with the disciples in the setting of the upper room. And Warden Cain brought the seminary, the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. And they have an extension center here, four-year college, two-year associate, four-year bachelor's degree in Christian ministry and theology. What better way for God to change a place than for men to learn about who God really is? The Bible College has also trained men not just to go serve in their church. A lot of the men that have attended the school have been strategically placed in the dormitories to help change the culture and become lights. It worked in some of If you're truly rehabilitated and you change your life, you also learn it better to give than to receive. Criminals are takers. They just take, take, take. So to break that cycle, we need to have programs so we let you show you're moral and, and feel like you're the moral person, give back. So then we started the toy shop where we make about 6,000 toys, wooden toys that we give away at Christmas. We probably give away 1,500 bicycles at Christmas. We do Johnny and Friends wheelchairs. We sent 1,700 wheelchairs to third world countries. We work in the field and harvest all the vegetables by hand. Everybody has a job here. There's no unemployment, and that's a good thing. The work is meaningful work. It's not just make work. But the point is, the culture changed in the prison totally to where the mom and daughter can walk anywhere in the prison. No whistles, no cat calls, no graffiti. There's no gangs in the prison. And the stats are incredible when it comes to violence. And so, truly, God did Second Chronicles 7.14. He healed this land. Amazing, amazing grace, how, how sweet. It's almost like a revolution. It's a God-driven revolution where the God drives our culture and God drives what we do and we get our spiritual guidance from him. And we listen to him, and look, it's amazing. He really does tell us what to do. I can't believe it.
Warden Kane has opened up the doors in this prison for programs to take place, for ministries to come in, for churches to function, for things to happen that wouldn't normally happen in any other institution. He's a different type of leader because of the God factor. I don't know his walk. I don't know his everyday life. But I know that he has a relationship with God because it shows in the everyday events in this prison. And if it had not been for that relationship, many of us wouldn't have a relationship with God either. I don't have any love for any man as great as I do for Warden Kane, nor any more respect. And for a convict to say that he loves a warden is not going to win me very many fans, but it's just fine. He has brought so much opportunity in this prison, and he gave me the benefit of the doubt when no one else would. You got to do that little devotional every morning, because if you do that little devotional every morning, you're just putting the gas in the car, and you're keeping it going, because it gets you where that you can hear God. It's not that he just all of a sudden says, do this or do that so much. He makes you think it, and then you realize, I couldn't have thought of that because it would be such an awesome thought. And that thought you're having because you're close to him and you're praying, and you're praying for guidance and leadership, that you're going to think of it. The legacy that I leave here is not bricks and mortar. The legacy we leave here is what's in the hearts of these men. The response of both Saul and all those who have followed Christ ever since, just like these men. Is what do you want me to do? To ask the question, well, what do you want me to do? I'm going to ask Stuart and them to come on down as we close this morning. Saul didn't do like Ananias, even though I think Ananias was just fine. He didn't bargain, he didn't negotiate. He didn't question or he didn't come halfway. And I'll say this about conversion and transformation ultimately. It is a mysterious, mystical thing. (laughs) It doesn't come as fast as we want. Sometimes it's bumpy and hard. But as I said earlier, the promise of Scripture is God can take ordinary people to receive power for extraordinary change. Let me ask you, where would you be right now 
of the things that God's been prompting you to do, and you know it. Where would you be now if you'd have started it three months ago when he prompted you? Where would you be today if you'd have started five years ago in your marriage where you know you've been prompted? What would our city look like or what would your neighborhood look like if what you've been prompted and what you've been nudged and what you've been asked to do? You would have been like Paul saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm not coming halfway. I'm not negotiating. I'm not bargaining. I'm not doing any of that. I'm just asking you, what do you want me to do? Are you where you want to be? Genuinely, are you where you want to be? I think for most of us, we don't even really know what we want to be. Most of the time, we just don't want to be what we are right now. Some of us are, and I'm, and I'm so thankful for those who are following after Christ with everything that says, I know I'm exactly where I want to be, and that's an awesome place to live. Or maybe there's somebody in your mind right now that, as we talked about, even like these prisoners, or even like I mentioned earlier, you've got a picture of somebody in your mind that you're not going to change it. You've decided as a Christian it's okay. God wants to set you free from that. Won't you stand with me? I want to pray for us, but we're going to close today in communion. just say this about that and I'm going to pray with us before we come. Logistically, we, what we do is we come down front and we ask those of you on this side to come down this aisle and those on this side to come down this aisle. You'll take the bread and dip it in the cup and partake of it here or you can take it back to your seat either one. It's up to you. But uh, We do this as a part of community. But most of all, we do this individually as a remembrance of what Christ has done in our lives, of the blood that was shed, death and the resurrection that gives us life. Can you remember that moment right before? Before you stepped across that line and accepted Christ as your Savior, that conversion, that change. And I hope you never want to go back there. But we're going to partake again today of together in a deep remembrance of what Christ has done. But I want to ask this. If you don't know Christ as your Savior today and you're here, maybe for the first time, maybe I'm just going to ask you if God is prompting you to go ahead and partake, to do that. Because He is stirring something in you. He's drawing you. He's wooing you. I remember those days right before I became a Christian <clears throat> in really months of the wooing, the drawing. And I couldn't quantify it, but I knew it was real. Let me pray for us as we come.
we just come before you today. As people just, I hope and pray, as as Warden Cain said, when we're desperate from you, we hear from you. He said he had never really heard from you before until he became desperate enough. I pray for Lord today to across this room, including this pastor, to be desperate, to desire, and to hunger. And to take the step of faith that Ananias to go where we're asked to go. Or like Paul, to have to put the things we believe before on the shelf. Because you've changed our minds. You've changed the way we look at things. You've changed us. And it's all because you came, you loved, you gave a love, not because of what everybody had done, because we were sinners and broken, but because of who you were. We want to be those kind of people, Lord. Help us. But Lord, as we partake now, together as a family, to bless this time, to use this time, to strengthen us to be everything you've called us to be Lord we pray over these elements in your name